0: This is
1: germ warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is germ warfare, the battle of ideas. Daniel Estulin, thank you for joining me in the trenches.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's, it's a great pleasure. I I, I know of you through my good friend, Whitney Webb, and I'm very, very happy that uh, you decided to do this.
1: Well, we did try a week ago and you had a, a big hurricane.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you know, luckily it didn't come anywhere near us, but uh, it did enough damage. I mean, you saw what happened in Florida, 240 kilometers per hour winds. So, you know, we we, we had enough of a bleed in, in Cancun, because I live in Mexico, in Cancun, to actually turn the power of internet off. But, luckily we didn't go through the damage that uh, the united states had to go through
1: i thought you lived in spain
0: i lived i used to live in spain when i uh, um i lived in spain between 1993 and 2015. Uh, but no i well, in 2016 moved back to canada and when covid started uh, i took my family and we moved to mexico to to cancun and now we're in mexico
1: is it beautiful there
0: it's a beautiful place to be it's it's a wonderful place i'll show you a photograph so that your audience can actually see what Cancun looks like which is an amazing an amazing place i mean it's not probably the way you usually start your interviews but
1: uh, uh i love it uh, <laughs> by all means show show me photos Besides <laughs> like this now where is that? that is that is that near yeah. you
0: because my beach is five minutes away from my house
1: can you lift it can you just lift it up a little bit oh wow that's beautiful sure so wow
0: this, this is cancun yesterday
1: that's and so uh, amazing so you,
0: can, you can understand why why we live where we live and this is what it looked like uh last week with the with a hurricane
1: wow <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyway strong feelings and emotions but anyway it's an amazing place to be and it's a great place because again you know mexico um we lived in canada in toronto when the COVID thing started and and Trudeau announced that they're shutting schools down, borders down. Mm-hmm. I thought it hey, probably a good time to get the hell out of there and we did. Like four days later they shut the borders down and we've been here ever since.
1: It's funny you say that because um, uh, I've heard that Mexico has been quite somewhat good in that respect, much like us here on the African continent where the leaders are too corrupt and inept to oppress us successfully.
0: Do you know it's uh, it's it, to a point it's true, but also you have to remember that the Mayas five hundred years ago they used to drink their victims' blood. So this is not the kind of pusillanimous Canadians. Kind of <laughs> different kind of. When you put it in context, you have to understand it from this perspective. I mean, I mean Mexicans are really nice people, okay? Until they become not very nice, and so <laughs> they're, they're the Mayas, and so the the, the uh, Uh, It's very difficult. It's very difficult to to them what's been done to the Canadians or the Americans or the British or the the Spanish or the Europeans in general. So, again, if you want to live in a place where personal freedom is important, this is the place.
1: Let me get straight into the talking point. Daniel, what is the Bilderberg Group?
0: it's a it's a it's a funny question uh it's not funny because it's haha funny but because uh you know my first book many many years ago when i came out of the uh, military counterintelligence i needed to eat and so i thought to myself hmm, what am i gonna do i'm gonna write a book okay so it had to be something that i knew lots about but at the same time you know i couldn't reveal any secrets so i thought to myself well you know we've our intelligence service we've uh like any other intelligence in the, in the world. We've always paid a lot of attention to private uh, secretive organizations and Bilderberg was, you know, par excellence, one of them. And so I had a lot of information on the Bilderbergers, a lot of documents, because when, we, when you're talking, when you get into the area of conspiracy theories, no quote unquote, uh, the, the, the hard part is to convince people that these things are real. And so when people talk about, you know, they control the world, uh, you know, who are they? Uh, Are we talking about the Jews? Are we talking about the Masons? Are we talking about the Illuminati? Are we talking about, you know, the the, the all-seeing eye? You know, the typical kind of stuff. Are we talking about the shapeshifters? You needed to prove to people that these, they actually existed. And so it was important to show people the documents and the photographs and the secret communications and the facts and all kinds of other things, which I did. My first book, which Came out in the United States in two thousand and seven, although in Spain it came out in two thousand and five called The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Okay, had over two hundred pages of documents and photographs and all kinds of other stuff, make people actually understand, wow, this stuff is real. Okay, so that's a wacky conspiracy theory. Okay. And so uh, that book sold like eight million copies in sixty-eight countries in forty-two languages, if I'm not mistaken of five continents was the number one in like 20 countries in the world. because when it came out back in 2005 in Spain and 2007 in the United States and in the english-speaking world, people said to themselves, wow well, we've always known we had coup d'etat in this country, a president was murdered in that country, you had the financial shenanigans in this place. And now we know who did it. And so, you know, when I say it's a funny kind of a question, what, what Bilderberg has done, and, and again, I've lived very well off by, you know, the royalties of my book. I've, I have 18 books published in, in many different languages. But what, what basically happened with Bilderberg, and people simplify everything, Jeremy, to, to, to a common denominator. So when Bilderberg came out and suddenly they said, aha, we've always known that these are the people who control the world. And that's actually not the way things work. So again, when kind of an introduction. So when we discuss Bilderberg, if we're talking serious discussion, we're talking about closed supranational structures. And so one of the main weaknesses, I guess you would say, of any kind of a conspiracy theory, conspiracy studies, is that even when, uh, when you consider staggering amount of information, often it's very hard to conceptualize it. In other words, you have a small group of people through supranational structures can indeed manage the course of history. You know, I often hear a silly uh, argument from people that how can these powerful people agree with each other when a silly little local government representative in a three-horse town can't put up a unified front or a national parliament, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, no? And so, moreover, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's the capitalist system that gives rise to the closed uh, supranational structures of world government. And so, in fact, its existence, it's impossible to understand the existence of closed, of a capitalist system itself without these supranational structures, because they're a feature of the capitalist system. So, for example, if we try to explain uh, the capitalist system, we must begin with what's called the invisible hand. That is, with closed, supranational, coordinated structures and also management which is the very fact of their existence, removes one of the most important basic contradictions of capitalism, because without this invisible element and the personifying structures of this element, the function of capitalism is impossible. So, for example, uh, in economic terms, uh, capitalism is a whole world. It's a supranational system. The world market knows no boundaries. But on the political plane, the capitalist system is not a whole, but the totality, kind of a mosaic of states there, uh, the international organization. In other words, the organization of national states. And this is one of the most serious contradictions of capitalism, which most people, the laymen, will think that, aha, the Bilderberg, all seeing eye, this is it, okay? The contradictions between capital on the one hand and the state on the other, global on the one hand and domestic on, on the other. And so, for example, by the middle of the 19th century, as capitalism became integral into the system for itself, in other words, with the acquisition of, a, uh, of an adequate material base for it, in other words, industrial productive forces, capitalism acquired a strong manufacturing foundation. But industrial productive forces, their regional, being mostly highly concentrated in North America, for example, in Nor- or North Atlantic, inside uh, Europe, the United States, Canada, North Atlantic. And in contrast, industrial relations are global in nature conflicting with state political forms and often trying to break them. And so in whatever country it lives, especially if it's a large country, the financial segment of this big bourgeois always has interests that go beyond national borders. That's obvious, okay? Its own borders and borders of other countries. And so these interests, they can be realized only by, how? By violating the laws of one state or another state. And often, you know, one's own countries and others at the same time. And this is what we see when we're talking about this global uh, 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 international structure, what's called one world company limited corporations that have more power than any government on the planet. Moreover, again, it's not a one-time violation, but a constant systemic process. And so since commodity chains on the world market constantly violate this state political borders, for the top of the capitalist class, firstly, supranational structures, organization are needed, And that's why you have the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, all these supranational structures, which have nothing to do with with the nation state itself. And secondly, these organizations should be not completely secret, then close to the general public. And finally, these organizations or structures should be able to influence the states and influence their leaders, those leaders being simultaneously above the law, above the state and over capital. And for example, World Economic Forum is one such example. So it's very easy if you understand, you know, conceptually how these uh, structures work. The theory, No, you can explain why Bilderbergers and the Trilateral Commission and the Council of Foreign Relations and so many other think tanks, foundations, organizations, how all these groups work together. And so what these structures are engaged in, it cannot be called anything other than a permanent and institutionalized conspiracy. And therefore, we should talk about the conspiracy system, not the conspiracy theory. Because capitalist system includes all the types of closed, uh, supranational structures, and most often, not always, within the bounds of capital. In other words, Masonic lodges gentlemen's club, as you have in uh, clubs, as you have in England, secret societies, etc., etc. In other words, conspiracy systems in no case are exhausted by Freemasonry and these quasi-Masonic organizations. But then in the 18th and a significant part of the 19th centuries, they were the dominant organizational forms of the capitalist systems. But at the end of the 19th century, and then coming into the 20th century, you have new modern forms of, of a conspiracy system. Again, I'm not talking about conspiracy uh, theory. Conspiracy systems arise, which do not abolish the old system, but are often associated with them and are much more directly related to politics and economics and also intelligence. And so this conspiracy system, if you think of a kind of you know table, is the third corner of a capitalism system. And in fact, I'd say it occupies the tip of the triangle above the capital and also above the state located on the same plane. And so when the story of the capitalist era is written and told as the history of only nation states and capital, it is totally incomplete and also false account because it presents a two-dimensional world when in fact we're dealing with a three-dimensional system. And I repeat, without the conspiracy system, OK, the history of the capitalist era is absolutely incomprehensible. It's impossible to explain. And that's when we get into the you know, these wacky conspiracy theories. And what's more, the history of the capitalist system should be inscribed in the history of capital wealth. In other words, cycles of accumulation and also the state, the struggle for hegemony. And also their relationship should be analyzed as a subject of the system, which is very important. Again, representing both capital on the one end, and the state on the other, and linking them organizationally, such an area that is outside the state and outside the capital. You have these elite conspiracy systems that are above the state and above the capital itself. So again, just to summarize, capitalism is not only capital, because capital existed before capitalism, and most likely will exist after capitalism is dead and buried. Capitalism is a very complex a social system that institutionally, state and politics and civil society and mass education manipulates capital, its long-term interests, and also provides expansion or space for it. And expansion is absolutely necessary because capitalism is an extension or it's a growth-oriented system. And we've seen that, for example, between the the end of Second World War and the end of the Soviet Union, you had two models Two systems. You have the capitalist system based on the dollar, okay, the United States and, and, and its allies, okay, and it's based on what's the cornerstone of that system uh, uh, freedom of speech, private property, etc. Et and then on the other hand, you have the Soviet Union satellites with the ruble as the base currency on the one hand and also common good on the other. And so these two systems coexisted, but both systems had the same problem. The limits of growth within each model, because capitalism controlled 60% of the world economy and socialism controlled 40%. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed, which is not the place to discuss it wide, but you know, suffice to say that in 1991, the Soviet Union was growing 11% per year. It collapsed because a system where everything is common good, if you wanted to control the, and be the owner of the system itself, you need to destroy it from within, which was, which, which is what was done, okay, with the help of the West. And so when these two systems merged in 1991 into one, Capitalism, which was literally on its last legs in nineteen eighty seven, we had you know the, the the Black Monday and then and the think tanks and the and and, and and financial institutions in the United States predicted that you know dire consequences of the of the collapse of the Western capitalist model unless it could expand into the Soviet space, which it did in nineteen ninety one as a result of, of the collapse of the Soviet model. But in seventeen years, generally between nineteen ninety one and two thousand and eight, it expanded because it's a very dynamic system. Okay, and basically took over 40% of the global economy. But in 2008, okay, we came to the beginning, and today is the end, of a model based on infinite growth. And again, going back to the whole concept of expansion. Expansion is necessary because capitalism is an extensively growth-oriented system. Okay, as soon as the world rate of profit declines, capitalism, it needs another part to keep expanding. Except today, there's nowhere to expand because We've expanded to the limits of growth within the economic model. And so the exhaustion of this non-capitalist area in 1991, you know, literally meant asphyxiation and relatively quick death, or rather the dismantle of capitalism, which it survived. But now it won't be able to survive because the death of the Soviet Union, it also meant the death of the capitalist system, X period of time later. okay? And so again, the conspiracy, just to finish, the conspiracy system, what it does is, it removes the fundamental contradictions of capitalism. In other words, this is their function. But it's also said that the capitalist class did not have the ready-made structures for fulfilling this function. And so what they've done is they adapted the existing functions, in particular, the Masonic structures, which serve the interest of world markets, especially in the 17th, the 18th centuries, until, as I said, in the 20th centuries, you had the new structures, okay? These, the coefficients club, which came around in, in 1903. You also had the, the round table, the Cecil Rhodes round table, which later became uh, a Chatham House. And in, in the United States, it, it's known as the Council of Foreign Relations, et cetera, et cetera. So these structures permeated the, the, this global supranational structures in the 20th century. And then the, the, the Bilderbergers, when they came around, there was basically a, a need to create a supranational structure based on the NATO alliance on the one hand, you had the Anglo-Saxons; on the other hand, you had the Northern Europeans and Northern Italians, or Europeans and Northern Italians, as a kind of way to, to you know, to tame their differences and put up a common front against the Soviet Union or the the New Warsaw Bloc, which was coming around.
1: I just want to make Sorry
0: sure if- that. Sorry, but, but again, it's like yeah, I needed to explain this because mm. people think as some kind of a wacky conspiracy theory that you see in a TV show, and it's not like that. There's a theory for this. And mm. the theory of crime is something that these people understand very well. The common folk may not understand it. They may think of them as some kind of a crazy, wacky Illuminati, you know, Masonic lodges, as you see in in, in the Da Vinci Code, okay? But it's actually, it's, it's, it's a very easily explainable phenomenon, not the conspiracy theory itself, but the conspiracy system as a necessary element for the system to work, and in that in, in that sense, the London, London, okay, is this, the, has played a very important role in creating the system.
1: Mm, no, by all means, you, you can speak for as long as you want. I don't mind. I need to learn. But I just quickly wanted to clarify something. Um, it's just a grammatical thing. Saying Bilderberg group or Bilderbergers, it's the same thing.
0: Bilderberg is <coughs> the Bilderbergers is a kind of a um, a commoner way of saying it. The Bilderberg, the reason it's called the Bilderberg and not something else is that their first meeting was held uh, in a Bilderberg hotel in a little town called Oosterbeck on the out, uh, outskirts of, of, of Amsterdam in 1954. And that the, the, uh, the place, the, the Bilderberg hotel was actually owned by the Dutch royal family. And so that's why that when they held it there, they called themselves the Bilderbergers or the the Bilderberg Group. And thank God for that, because you know the title of my first book, the the true story of the Bilderberg Group. Had they called themselves, you know, the 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 the, the Best Western Hotel Group, I don't think it would have sold as well. Sold as well.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank uh, God for that.
1: Okay, so. The Bilderberg Group or the Bilderbergers? How do they then slot in? Is it an actual group or is it just a name for a concept?
0: Um. Again, w- uh,
1: so let me see. I mean, so, does it? I mean, like, is it? A, is it a group of actual members?
0: Bilderbergers. Uh, we're looking at um, Western Alliance NATO-based countries. Okay, so. Uh, Uh, we're talking about uh, Western Europe, Canada, the United States, Uh, you have other organizations, for example, Council on Foreign Relations, that's a a Bilderberg Group sister organization, which is in the United States, you have the trilateral, that's about 3,500 members, you have literally a parallel government in America, then you have the trilateral commission, Uh, which is America's Europe and Asia, thus trilateral, put together by David Rockefeller, Jimmy Carter's Big New Brzezinski back in the 1970s and 1973. And that's about, uh, uh, how many of them are the trilaterals? Um, It's about 300 members, approximately. So Bilderbergers, let's say they're more exclusive. But again, how how does this come about? So in in light of, of the rise of Atlanticism, culminating in in, in, uh, NATO's inception in 1949, a Western transatlantic power elite was uh, being cobbled together after World War II. And so this uh, transnational capital class, as called by some analysts, transnational capital class, doesn't answer, again, particularly to a nation state, but instead to multinational banks, corporations, and the idea of globalism in general, what I mentioned earlier, the supranational structures. And so contrary to Lenin's theory of imperialism, which basically assumes that uh, competing nation states act as a kind of behest of nationally based internal capital classes, bilateral capitalists between the United States and Western Europe literally emerged in the wake of World War II, And that's what Bilderberg is. It's uh, uh, for its NATO alliance former Western European United States and Canada now also includes other members from NATO alliance are part of the Eastern Europe who before used to belong to the Warsaw Pact alliance with the Soviet Union. Our, now, although this transnational class feeds again the favors that governments grant them on both sides of the Atlantic, it basically transcends this inter-imperialist rivalries and lives a kind of a life of its own beyond the scope of nation states. And so the emergence of this transnational power elite literally reverberates in the proliferation of globalist-minded think tanks, such as, as I mentioned earlier, a Council of Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission, for instance, but also uh, secretive transatlantic organizations and meetings such as the Bilderberg Group or the Pinay Circle from France, uh, or or even the Bohemian Grove. And so the Bilderberg Conference, or the Bilderberg Conference, it's an annual private invitation only meeting How many? About 120, 130. I think max is about 140 people of the European and also North American political elite in conjunction with leaders of industry and finance, academia and media. And although um, it kind of brings together some of the globe's most powerful people every year, the group is able to retain almost, I'd say, uh, a complete... Or, or, or completely, well, secrecy to a certain point, because, you know, my book came out, so everybody now knows what it is. Okay, very few reports come out in the media for obvious reasons. So, again, the media blackout in itself, it gives you a pretty good idea of Bilderberger's Power, because uh, people in the media do attend these conferences. And we're talking about the CEOs of some of the biggest media outlets in the world, The Economist, Wall Street Journal, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., etc., the, you know, the, the Time of London, etc. And so, again, rather than a totally homogenous group, okay, what, what they do is they organize around the principle of reaching consensus instead of, you know, through voting and formal resolutions, they reach consensus. And so the real power of the Bilderbergers lies in the core steering committee and also the powers behind them who project their ideas onto the attendees who then go to implement them through their various institutions. So for example, you know, the obvious question, does the Queen of England, now oh, she's dead now, but did she attend? No, she didn't, okay? She's too powerful, too big, much bigger than the Bilderberg group itself. And so whoever sits at this metaphorical table at the Bilderberg conferences, these are the representatives of the really powerful people, the Rothschilds. The Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, always attended these conferences. But again, you have to understand that Rockefeller is a face of a global project. And so these conferences, talking about the Bilderbergs, again, the name comes from the Hotel de Bilderberg in the Netherlands, where the first meeting was held in May, 1954. And it was initiated by this Polish politician in exile, Joseph Rettinger, nothing to do with the Pope. Okay, who basically was concerned about the growth of anti-Americanism in Western Europe. And so what he did is he proposed this international conference at which the Western European and, and, and North American elite will be brought together to promote Atlanticism. And so you have you know other founding members of Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, who joined the Nazi party back in the 1940s, former Belgian Prime Minister Paul Van Zeeland, uh, uh, head of the Union leader Paul Rico, important attendees, Also uh, came from the United States, such as the head of the CA, Walter Bedell Smith, and several other people as well, and needless to say, David Rockefeller company. And so the first, if you kind of look at, you know, the direction of the Bilderberg conferences themselves, the first five Bilderberg conferences, they they played a, um, I'd say, decisive role in the lead up signing of the Treaty of Rome. Which literally recognized by the you know the European Union itself as a kind of a formative event that lies at the foundation of today's Europe, and so during these meetings, you know, they talked about protectionism that was successfully uh, subordinated to the liberalizing idea of a common market, and if you kind of read the documents which were leaked by WikiLeaks, it shows there was a general recognition of the what they call pressing need to bring the German people together with other people of Europe into a common market among the Bilderbergers at that third conference in September 1955. So it was literally generally recognized, that is, according to them, that it was their common interest and responsibility to arrive, as I said, in the shortest term possible to this highest degree of integration, beginning with a common European market. And so this is what 19, 19, 1954, 1955, where they talked about, you know, the Common Assembly uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, the European Movement, which again was held uh, and promoted by the CIA in the early 1950s. And so later, okay, we're talking about the NATO General Secretary. Uh, he is reported to have attended at least one early Bilderberg meeting when NATO uh, alliance was was put together. And so. Um, If you kind of look at, if we, you know, just to summarize, the historical trend towards European integration can only be understood as a kind of mixture of several intertwining factors. And the more covert aspects that would explain coming to existence of this common market back in 1958, the event which is generally remembered as one of the, if not the most important milestone of European integration, is, again, largely absent from the historical debate and the reason. Is again because these things were planned put together organized and promoted long before that in the early 1950s by the Bilderbergers in their first meetings which again the whole idea was to merge the 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 european individual countries into this common european market which is what we have today as a kind of a you know previous step to to a global government which is what they're promoting right now
1: so if i'm following correctly uh The Bilderberg Group is sort of a catch-all phrase for a network of powerful people, much like Davos is.
0: Okay, let me explain it differently. Somewhat. So, in the world of international finance, there are those who steer the events and those who react to the events. Davos reacts to the events. And so, while the Davos crowd, or anyone like them, they're better known, they're greater in numbers, and seemingly more powerful. Everybody talks about Klaus Schwab. The true power rests with the former. And so at the center of this global financial system, are the financial oligarchy today represented in part by the Bilderberg group. So again, Bilderberg organization is very dynamic because it changes with the times and absorbs and creates new parts while excreting the remains of the decaying parts. Members, they come and go. Okay, you have the core circle, but you know, they change all the time. But the system itself, that's the important part has not changed. It is a self-perpetuating system. You can literally say a virtual spider web of interlocked financial, political, economic, and and obviously industry interests with a Venetian ultra montane Fondi model at the center. Again, Bilderberg is not a secret society. It's not some uh, evil all-seeing eye or Jewish Masonic conspiracy. There's no conspiracy here. Even though a lot of people were there, well, infantile fantasies see it as such. No group of people. I don't care how powerful they are, sitting around a table, you know, holding heads in the dark, you know, staring at a crystal ball, planning the world's domination. It's not a Cartesian fantasy world in which you have the the isolated intentions of some individuals instead of the dynamics of social processes. That's the part I was trying to explain earlier when we're talking about, you know, the, the conspiracy system itself that shaped the course of history as the movement of Uh, evolving ideas, themes over successive generations. And so it's clinically significant, for example, that today's more popular variety of this wild-eyed conspiracy theories reflect the kind of peculiarly pathological style in infantile fantasy associated with the Lord of the Rings or the Star Wars or Harry Potter cults. And so the characteristic form of mental action these cults express is the magical power of the will acting outside real, physical space time dimensions. Again, it's, it's literally a meeting of people who represent a certain ideology. And Bilderberg is simply the medium for bringing together financial institutions, which are the world's most powerful and also most predatory financial interests. And this time, it's the combination which is the worst enemy uh, of humanity. Not one world order, a uh, one world government, as too many uh, people mistakenly believe. It's the ideology of one world company limited. In other words, corporations that have more power than any government on the planet, which is what I explained you know, in, in, in the initial segment on, on the Bilderberg. And, and this is, again, easily provable. Because back in 1968, at the Bilderberg meeting in, in Montreal, on the outskirts of Montreal in Canada, George Bach was then, um, I think he was undersecretary for economic affairs with JFK and, and, and Johnson. He said, where does one find a legitimate base for the power of corporate management to make decisions that can profoundly affect the economic life of nations? to us governments, they have only limited responsibility. So this is it. And so the idea behind each and every Bilderberg meeting is to create what they themselves call the aristocracy of purpose between European and North American elites on, well, according to them, the best way to manage the planet. In other words, the creation of this global network of giant cartels, more powerful than any nations on the planet and destined control, according to them, the necessities of life for the rest of humanity and this you know what after the Bilderbergers meet and do they do what they do you know the next if we go one level down that's what world economic forum in davos with klaus schwab and company that's what they begin to promote globally
1: a brave new world
0: yeah exactly but if you again if you if you kind of think about it um if you um if you kind of think about it, Bilderberg as, as an idea represents a very liberal ideology. Uh, if you don't mind, I want to explain that because mm. I think it's important. Because you don't like, again, well, I, you know, I, I, I come from the, from the Soviet Union. I mean, my country doesn't exist anymore. But one of the things about... Uh, 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 universities and, and, and schooling in general is we were all taught theories of everything. You know, Marxism, Leninism, capitalist, communism, social—every theory imaginable. We all know that those of us who studied and who come from certain you know areas of, of expertise. In other words, we can create models that explain anything on the planet Earth because we're all theoreticians. And liberalism as a concept. It's very important to understand. So we can't understand Bilderberg. We can't understand what they're doing to us right now. We can't understand the direction of the world is going in, unless we understand what liberalism is. And so liberalism, again, not talking about the 19th century variety of Vol- Voltaire Vol- Vol- and Company. No, I'm talking about today's liberalism. Liberalism is an ideology okay, that prioritizes the liberation of individual, of all forms of collective identity. And it began historically with the Protestant Reformation, the abolition of the medieval estate or strata of society. And so as a result, a bourgeois society emerged in which everyone was equal, but only in theory, in terms of opportunities. But in the eyes of the liberals, this was amazing progress. And so whatever was left of the European empires and the power of the Pope, modern nation state arose. Again, individuals only in the form of states were freed from collective identity, which is Catholic and imperial. But liberal progress did not stop there. You had philosophers, Locke and Kant, they described the project of civil society in which nation states were to be abolished. And so in theory, individuals could do without them. And so thus arose the philosophy of cosmopolitanism, which implies the abolition of what nation states and ideally the creation of a world government. And so this was the birth of globalism, albeit in theory. And then Adam Smith comes along and formulates the foundation of liberalism in economics, pointing out, for example, the international nature of the markets. And the development of capitalism is this uh, liberal theory which assumed the gradual disappearance of states, and in the end, the complete replacement of politics by the economy, in other words, by the market. And then in the 19th century, a Marxism, Karl Marx, or Marxism, and its critical uh, theory emerged which juxtaposed liberal individual uh, individualism to a theory of classes and also marxism also agreed on the need for the extinction of states internationalism and then in the 20th century the idea of extreme nationalism which is fascism was born challenging both liberalism and communism and so at the forefront uh they put the principle of the nation in other words state for the nazis race for the national socialists and the defeat of fascism in 1945 Remove this ideology from the agenda and also the image of this future was uh, contested between liberals and, and communists. These are the ones who won World War II. And so this was the ideological meaning of the Cold War, which lasted between 1946 and 1991. And in 1991, the liberal West won. The Soviet Union collapsed and communist China embarked on the path of this free market economy, albeit with Chinese specificity. Okay, but if we start looking at it closer, it turned out that uh, liberals have not quite abolished two types of collective identity. One is sexual gender, another one is human proper, and this means that liberal progress needed to address these new obstacles. And this is why you have gender politics that come to the forefront since the 1990s of the 20th century. Its meaning is not just tolerance towards uh, perverts and radical feminism restoring gender equality. Sex as gender, you have to understand the philosophy of these people, should become, according to liberal progressives, a matter of individual choice, such as religion or profession, nationality, etc. Otherwise, progress, according to them, will slow down. And henceforth, this uh, um, exaggerated emphasis on both transgender people and gay couples in the Biden administration. Today, for example, democracy has come to be defined as a kind of rule of minorities against the majority. In other words, a deliberately criminal majority at any time under the influence of popular sentiments who can elect a trump or a hitler for example okay now trump tried to defend the old understanding of democracy but was needless to say overthrown and so the final stage which is what we're seeing right now for the liberal is the abolition of humanity and that's the politics of post-humanity and transhumanism and so the liberation of this um how we call this collective identity requires the abolition of species and so the liberal futurists they are already praising the new possibility of posthumanism in other words fusion with the machine with greatly enhanced body strength memory heightened sensations genetic engineering will help and disease according to them okay memory can be stored in a server in the cloud humanity will be able to connect to the machine and achieve immortality that's the the uh, harari's idea that's the the, the, the ideologue of uh, of uh, the davos forum in other words the great reset is the triumph of liberal ideology in its highest state which is the state of globalization and all those um who do not uh, agree with such an agenda are declared enemies of open societies And so they're encouraged to voluntarily surrender. Otherwise, the whole progressive world will turn against them with its unlimited finance, its military technical potential, inexhaustible ability to to control the uh, imagination of people, for example. That's something else that they're talking about. And so, uh, joking aside, okay, if we kind of uh, uh, think about where we are right now, the Great Reset is the last rung of human progress, as understood by liberal thought. Now all humanity has to be liberated. All humanity, thanks to the liberals, is now free. Free to be a liberal. But you have to keep in mind that at the same time, society is not free not to be liberal. So someone who is an illiberal or insufficiently liberal, okay, then the the the, the system itself, the cancel culture, is acting against this individual, not a human being, okay, but not just any being, but some degraded lower you know, uh, life form. In the evolution, according to these new liberals, because for the true liberals, I'm not a human being. Okay, I don't think that they even consider me to be a being. For them, I'm zero. I'm this black hole, you know, squared, discarded and banished to the distant space of netherworld.
1: You don't I'm even know joking. what a woman is. Yeah, but they, they don't like. They don't even know what a woman is.
0: Well, joking aside, so mm. we are at a crucial stage that will de- de- determine the direction of the world. And again, much is at stake for the liberals as well, because they're well aware that if their, if, if, if their defeats and failures continue to pile up, then the entire 500-year history of liberalism will collapse and so, this multipolar world to which Putin himself intuitively gravitates, directly criticizing the voracious parasitical globalization, leaves the liberals without a single chance of success. And therefore, they remove their masks abandoned the play along principles of participatory democracy and elected by to the White House, regardless of any decency, procedures, rules, etc., cetera, et cetera, And so the Democrats, driven by the logic of globalism, were willing to sacrifice traditional American institutions, democracy itself, to achieve their goal. But when they made it to the White House, they suddenly realized that it won't bring back the old glory. And because of this Putin speech in Davos, Okay, uh, recently, and his speech uh, yesterday, uh, at the, uh, the ceremony of, of, of accepting the new territories into the Russian domain was so powerful, so symbolic and, and so meaningful. Okay, And again, I, I agree, it's not easy to understand the historical background of liberal ideology, which uh, systematically leads to the destruction of humanity. It's impossible to understand it for those who are grown up in a humanistic system, but also for those who are educated under the influence of this liberal democracy, which is today a Collective West, within the capitalist system itself, and under the deep indoctrination of what? Globalist culture. Okay, and this is where the whole concept Great Awakening is coming from. So this slogan was was uh, first proposed by Trump supporters, who then became victims of this looming new liberal totalitarianism. Okay, and so again, uh, what we're seeing right now are the the last phases. Just to summarize, but I got to go in a couple of minutes. The last phases of a model which today is on its deathbed. And the problem for today's model and we can talk about Great Reset, we can talk about liberalism, we can talk about Bretton Woods, is that they don't have the language. No one in the West has the language to explain where we are at and where we are going. And the reason for that is also simple to explain. Because the entire edifice of Western culture, since the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, back in 1944, Okay. All the institutions, think tanks, foundations, governments, international organizations, be it the Bilderbergers or Council on Foreign Relations the Trilateral Commission or think tanks or any, it doesn't matter, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, they all use a language which today is on its deathbed. Language, I'm not talking about English or Spanish or French or German. I'm talking about the language of the economy. None of them can explain what's happening today. And that's one of the reasons why, to go back to the beginning, today, Bilderberg as an organization is absolutely, totally irrelevant because the entire basis philosophy behind their creation was to push this globalism. Okay. And make it into a turn this into this regionalization of global economies into this global one world government, which today simply can no longer work because again, they don't have the language to explain what we're seeing right now. As an example, it's easy to explain. Since 2008 crisis, talking about 14 years, how many uh, Nobel Prize winning economists have we had, 21 or 22? I think 17 men and three or four or five women. Not one of these people who are supposed to be the brightest, okay, the most prepared economists in the world, not one of them can explain what the hell is going on. If you say, ladies and gentlemen, can you explain to me this? They can't. And so they win their Nobel prizes for the economy. One case was a Canadian guy who actually figured out a way how a colony of ants in God knows where in Africa or in, in, in Amazonia. And you try to apply this to humanity. OK, well, this is where we are today. There's no language to explain. OK, and that's the problem, not only for the United States or Western Europe, that's a global problem because we have reached the limits of growth within a, a particular model. And that model is based on infinite expansion, as I explained in the beginning, capitalist system itself. It needs expansion. We've had that with the English Empire, okay, we expanded at the cost of other nations. We can talk about the Spanish Empire, who have done the same thing, okay. Or we can talk about the American Empire, who expanded at the cost of color revolutions and, you know, putting a gun to your head, bringing democracy and, and freedom to, to, to nations around the world. Well, that doesn't work anymore. Because we've reached the limits, there's nowhere else to expand, and that's why we're seeing the end of humanity, and now we have transhumanity and posthumanity—a totally different species. And that's what they're at right now, and this is, is this, a scary. It
1: was very scary, but is this something that they talk about at the those annual Bilderberg meetings?
0: They talk about this not only at the Bilderberg meetings; they talk about it at all the meetings, whether it's international monetary fund, whether it's Davos forum meetings. That's what they're talking about all the time. The idea of of, of of transhumanism and post-humanism, that's the change towards the sixth technological paradigm, fourth industrial revolution. So it went from uh, from industrial economy, back in the 1960s and 70s, to post-industrial economy in the 1980s, which basically people playing with numbers on the computer, speculators. Oh, look how much money I have, $16 billion. No, you don't. You have lots of zeros on the screen, but you have nothing. Okay, and you've seen mm. how much money people have lost. Over the past few weeks, they've lost their zeros. They have nothing. They've lost zeros, and so now we're coming to the new age of trans-industrial economy. Trans doesn't refer to transsexuals. We're talking about trans-industrial, artificial intelligence, robotics, virtual reality, distance learning, all these kinds of things, which is the sex technological paradigm, and then the seventh technological paradigm. We're talking about bases on the moon, fission, fusion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the new world. And so the idea of going from humanity to posthumanity, transhumanity, to you know, to to man-machine cyborgs, etc., etc. This is a very significant part of where these people, their idea of, of, and that's why you have the transhumanistic project, Global Twenty Forty Five. Okay, which is again by twenty forty-five, they want a complete change where humans are no longer humans, but something totally different. But that's a conversation for another day, Jeremy.
1: Okay, so then if. If no, if nobody knows what's going on, why are their meetings so secretive?
0: Um, it's a good question because I think it's not that no, nobody knows what's going on. It's uh, it's now it's out in the open. Why is it out in the open now? Because they're simply running out of time. Okay, beforehand, I mean, how did the West capitalist West? What did they sell you? They sold you the freedom of speech, democracy, human rights, all that kind of stuff. Do you have any of those things? No. We've never had that, except when no. you have the Soviet Union, when you had another system. If you are, you know, beaten to death by, you know, by, by, by a police baton, or, you know, beaten to death by a dog, because they set the dog on you, as they did in Australia and New Zealand, on protesters, or oh, they took your property or your kids away, as they've done in Canada with Trudeau. When the Soviet Union existed, people had a choice They said, okay, I'm not voting for these people anymore. I'm voting for the other guy, okay? His system seems fairer. And they were terrified of that. They were terrified. In Italy, we had a very strong communist party, in Germany, in France, in England, et cetera, et cetera. They are terrified. And so they had to play along, they had to pretend. They have to pretend that human rights, let's get along, we love you, everything is fine, and, you know, freedom of speech, you have your private property as a cornerstone of the system itself. It doesn't exist. Okay, the guy who is the Minister of, of Finance in Spain about a month ago, he said, well, the whole idea of private property, it needs to be redefined. In other words, we'll take it away whenever we want to. We've seen that with in, in in Cyprus. We've seen how they're taking your private properties away, how they're locking down your bank accounts. Because you want global liberal banking financier system. And now today Russia is rising up. Again, it's not a fight between Russia and Ukraine. It's the fight to define a post-world order. And the West is terrified because they know if they lose, it's over for them. Okay, so they're willing to even they're willing to go the way of thermonuclear war to write off four quadrillion dollars in debts and responsibilities, but to make sure their system stays in place. It won't, okay, but they don't quite understand. And the most important thing why it's so open right now is they're out of time. They have no time to be subtle. They're out of time because this thing is barreling down at the speed of light and they have no time to be subtle. They need to get the system locked down. And that's what we're seeing right now. They're destroying the middle class. they destroyed it in, uh, in 2020, 2021. Whatever is left now, they're trying to destroy it by interest rates, transfer of wealth, etc., cetera, et cetera. Is that, okay? what's, the,
1: is that what... Is that what... Covid was and and of course ukraine and the pipeline
0: it's all part of the same dynamics i mean the the bottom line is the background we've reached the limits of growth within a particular model they have nowhere else to go you can't steal from anyone else because you've stolen everything from everyone and the only place you can really steal things from is russia but they have the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world okay it's not a country that's gonna go down they're not serfs to anyone and they won't be able to defeat them. It's 150 million country with the biggest thermonuclear arsenal in the world. So the only way you can actually do this is the way of thermonuclear war. Whether they're willing to do that or not, I don't know. I hopefully not, but I don't know. Or why do you think that the Bill Gates's and the Jeff Bezos and the Peter Thiel's, that's the owner of PayPal? What do you think they're building? You know, buying you know tens of thousands of acres of land and building underground bunkers for hundreds of millions of dollars. If you had hundred million dollars to spare. Would you buy yourself, you know, build yourself a bunker so you can live like a rat? Or buy yourself an island in the middle of the Caribbean, you know, have your drinky you poo in here head and watch the sunset? It's obviously a, a, a rhetorical question. What is it that they know that we don't? Well, you know, I can imagine. And so the point is that we're at a point where the West is absolutely desperate. And all these private secretive organizations like the Bilderberg and Company, okay, they're part and parcel of this idea. Of this global control, which is, has to be a unipolar, and the unipolar control is no longer working. And that's know. So,
1: is Putin a symbol of uh, opposition to?
0: No, it's it's you know it's, that's not simplified either. Putin is is the right guy, at the right place, at the right time in history. Okay, he, he's uh, uh, a a person who. Can take because again, if you if you kind of go through, through the thirty years of, of post-Soviet space, we had Gorbachev despised by ninety percent of Russians, despised for destroying the country, and Yeltsin, they, you know, a, a, a drunkard who destroyed and sold everything to the West, which you know, which wasn't nailed down to the floor. Okay, and so when you know, post-Yeltsin and post-Gorbachev, we have a country which was totally destroyed and dismantled try to get back on its feet. Because again, the only enemy really, if you look at it from a global point of view, is Russia. China is not a fighting nation, they have a lot of people. But with today's technology, it doesn't really matter how many fighters you have on the, on the battlefield. Okay, Russia can't, because they have the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. And no country in the world can win a war against them because you always have you know, the, 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 the weapon of last response. And what we have again, is not the war between Russia and Ukraine, or as they call it, a special military operation. It's Ukraine being used as a battery gram to destroy because Ukraine is Russia, we're the same people, same blood, same color, I mean, everything, same language. Okay, but what they've done over the past 30 years is through many different techniques, and perhaps we could talk about another day, they've turned Ukraine, they have literally turned into a, a fully functional Nazi state. Okay, and so when in 2014 you had what you had, you had coup d'etat, when legally elected president was, was, was obviously as We've seen so many other times in with West's intervention was toppled. They brought in caretaker governments. And part of the country said, We don't want these people, we didn't vote for them. And so they tried to succeed And what we've seen is since 2014 is the period which basically led to the 2022 Russian invasion on the 24th of February is, is um a way to define the future of not a unipolar, but a multipolar world, and see what this multipolar world is going to look like.
1: So, is is Putin um, is he an obstacle to the Bilderberg group?
0: Well, he's not. The, he's not an obstacle to the Bilderberg because again, Bilderbergers are a much lower level. Mm-hmm. These organizations, which again promote a liberal ideology today, they they are worthless today because whatever language they use, it's not in line with global language. In other words, language of the economy. They can't explain what's going on in the world. They could explain it within the framework of a model which worked between 1991 and pretty much today. But that model no longer works. It's on its deathbed. And what we see today is the entire model collapsing in front of our eyes. And so what Putin is, is somebody in power representing the interests of Russia as a nationalist. I'd say even a monarchist. He's not a communist. He's a monarchist more than anything else. Okay, and what Russia needs today is a Stalin, literally, you know, a Stalin, because Russia has always been historically, throughout its history, okay, a country controlled by the first person. Whether you are talking about the parliament, Duma, in this case, it has never worked in our country. It's always been the power of, you know, of, of the country, whether it's a czar, you know, a, a secretary general of the, of, the, uh, of the Russian Politburo, the Soviet Politburo, the president, as is today. It's always been a country ruled by the first person. Whether we're talking about uh the Ruriki or or, or uh or Ayuban, the terrible or we're talking about Stalin, or we're talking about Lenin, or we're talking about uh Putin today. It has always been a country of the first person. And that person that first person today has the responsibility of dismantling this global one world order.
1: Okay, Daniel, in front of you there's a crystal ball. What do you see?
0: <laughs> that's a good question. I see uh a world which, over the next three years, will look nothing like what we world what we understand the world is like. Okay, the changes that we're seeing today have only happened twice in the last two thousand years. The first time between the fourth and the sixth century, when the old Roman Empire was dis- dismantled and feudalism came about, and then a thousand years later, capitalism came about. Whether we're talking about you know the sixteenth or seventeenth century doesn't matter. Okay, and today, what we're seeing today is the third time over the past 2000 years, the destruction of the economic model. And the problem, and that's a big problem, we don't have a language to explain what comes after this. And this has never happened before. We always had the language to explain what was coming. And as, as I explained earlier, after feudalism came capitalism with its contradictions, but intrinsic contradictions which worked because it was based on several ideas, the capital, the state, and secret societies, or these private organizations. But today, we have nothing to explain what comes after this. What comes around the corner, we don't know. And so if I have a crystal ball, if I could have one wish, my wish is for us to find a model to explain what comes after this. Otherwise, this empty space, this vacuum is going to be filled with extreme violence.
1: Daniel Estulin, thank you for joining me in the trenches.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: My name is Jerem. this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit
1: supportgerm.com.